All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. Welcome to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Learn Your English is a company that is changing the way people study, learn, and teach languages. Learn Your English offers students and teachers strategies to effectively develop their abilities and skills in their own time. Bringing you the latest in English language learning and teaching, Teacher Talking Time explores all angles for teachers and students alike. Got a question? Comment. A story to share. Send us an email at info at learnyourenglish.com. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. been talking a lot about textbooks. Uh, what advice do you give to teachers, especially those who have been working with, with textbooks, so they can still teach lessons that meet some of the prerequisites needed for second language acquisition. What, what would be easier for someone who is trying to become more familiar with TBLT? What would you recommend to, pe to, to teachers out there? I, on several occasions, have agreed with the class to leave the course book at home. And <laughs> uh, one of the things that I've done is, and this is probably making a rod for my own back, where we go in, we do a rudimentary needs analysis, mm -hmm. what you need to do with the language. And we compare that needs analysis with the context page of the course book and see how much oh, That's a very interesting thing to do. And, and when, when very little of it matches up, we say, okay, maybe we could do that in the restaurant section at the back of, of chapter 5B. <laughs> one, <laughs> one point, you know. But this is because I was working in an academy which gave me a little bit of freedom. And mm -hmm. um, ideally, I was trying to get in there before they told the students to buy the book. Ellis and Long are the two main academics uh, promoting TBLT. Ellis is far more in favour of uh, retaining something of the structural syllabus, but even he doesn't advocate that for beginner learners. And he advocates, let's get them doing tasks, mm -hmm. lots of chunk learning, lots of learning by doing, lots of input. Right. I wonder where this misconception comes from. Um, I think it's just lack of familiarity with task-based language teaching. Is, um, yeah. Probably. It's like Penny R, I think, and, and Michael Swan maybe saying, you know, saying that how can they do tasks when they don't have the, the language to do the it? The language, yes. yes. The yes. point is that they get the language to do it from, from kind of input. From doing it, yeah. yeah. From input-based tasks. They might not yeah. be doing productive tasks from the kickoff. Right. Hi everyone, Andrew here. This episode was created with support from LSI Toronto, a state-of-the-art language school located in beautiful downtown Toronto, Canada. For more resources on today's topic, please see our website for show notes, links, and much more. Go to learnyourenglish.com slash podcast. Also, don't forget to connect with us online we want to hear your thoughts on today's show and other topics you'd like us to cover. Connect with us on all the socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Or shoot us an email, info at learnyourenglish.com. If you like what we do, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review on iTunes. Believe us, it goes a long way.
We also have a tip jar on Patreon for those looking to contribute to the creation of the podcast and help extend our community. The link to that and all online media is in the show notes and also on our website. Teacher Talking Time is a podcast for teachers, by teachers, as we need to support each other more in our industry. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. What's up, my people? What's up, everyone? I hope everyone's, everyone's doing okay. Uh, I'm Ian. My name is Ian Salif. I'm from Russia, living in Ecuador in this moment. And uh, you are listening to the Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. <laughs> So uh, I'm here with uh, Neil McMillan. Neil, uh, huge thanks for coming on the show. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And you? I'm all right. I'm all right. It's cold in Toronto, but um, you are probably the second Neil we, we interview for the podcast. And surprisingly, the first Neil was also um, Scottish. What's the commonality here? Is that the only name that you have in uh, Scotland? Yeah, well, I think it's a generational thing because, uh, well, I don't know. I know it's Neil McCutcheon you spoke to before. Right. And um, his writing partner, Neil Anderson, they wrote, they wrote a book together of, of TBLT activities. Right. And I get confused with them sometimes because obviously I've got a connection with TBLT. But I think we, were, we are roughly the same age. I don't want to say what that age is. You don't have but, to. Uh, a wave of nationalist fervor in Scotland in, the, let's say, the early 70s. Right. And uh, quite a lot of parents chose Scottish names for their kids that they hadn't done before. And Neil was one of them. I mean, Neil's a general Celtic name, obviously. It's not a solely Scottish name. Right. And I had four, there were four Neils in my primary school class. Wow. So I'm, I'm kind of used to being crowded out by Neil. <laughs> <laughs> Other Neils, I assure you. <laughs> it's true, because there are, there's you, there's the other Neil who wrote the TBLT book with, with mm. Kachin. So, and I also worked with a Neil here. So it's like, it, and he's also Scottish. So I was thinking, huh, that must be a, a thing. There's a lot yeah. of meals in, in Scotland. I don't know if, they're, they're still, if it's still fashionable. I doubt it. But it's funny because in Catalonia, now it's fashionable to call your a son Neil. But really? it's actually the way they pronounce the river Nile. So they're not, it's not a Celtic name here. It's like a oh. Celtic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really? But well, why is that a thing there now in, in Barcelona? I don't know. It's trendy names. I mean, um, I think... Parents are looking for names other than Jordi and Mark to call their I was going to say that. I was going to say that. A lot of Jordi. Um, yeah, a lot of Jordis here, yeah. Yes. Um, so it's interesting because the other two Neils are also interested. Like, basically, they've done a lot of work with TBLT. And TBLT is one of your, um, I would say, one of your main interests. Yeah, is, there, yeah. is, there, is that because, I don't know, is it because, is that a generational thing as well? Or, like, how do you... How, how would you explain that? I think it's pure coincidence because I didn't, mm. I don't, I, I don't really know these guys. Uh, I, well, I kind of getting to know them online, um, but I didn't know them prior to us launching the our course, which TBLT mm -hmm. online course started in March this year, the first one. And I think round about the same time, uh, Neil McCutcheon was online and he was promoting the book that they wrote um, and it came out then I think maybe in April round about the time of the IATFL conference if I, if I remember correctly mm -hmm. so I think it's just it's pure coincidence and there's maybe a kind of slight difference in the way that we see TBLT because I think TBLT is not a single entity 
Mm -hmm. um, there are various forms of it. And while we've been quite heavily inf influenced by Mike Long's version of TBLT, mm -hmm. the Niels McCutcheon and Anderson have been a bit more influenced by Jane Willis and uh, Rod Ellis. Right. Oh, so I, don't you, I, I don't know if you want to get into that or not, but we're gonna we're gonna get into Ellis. But uh, I was just curious <laughs> yeah. as to like, there's a lot of commonalities here. Niels' interest in TBLT. I was just wondering if there was also a generational thing. <laughs> I don't know, because I think we've worked in quite different contexts. I mean, I spent most of my, until I moved to Barcelona, I was working in, in public education in Scotland, in further right. education, which is like mm -hmm. adult education. And there, uh, we didn't call it TBLT, mm. but because we ha were working with uh, immigrants mainly, a lot of refugees mm -hmm. um, and asylum seekers, it was English for survival. And because we have a set of qualifications that are kind of national Scottish qualifications for, as we call them, ESOL learners. Right. Which I think it's more like ESL maybe with you guys. Yes. Um, ESOL is English for speakers of other languages, right? Exactly. Okay. okay. And the, the assessments are quite performance based. So it's mm -hmm. like uh, lower levels, it's things like, um, could, you, could you get the right train ticket? You know, and they have to go right. to this little role, role play to get a train ticket. Um, it's that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. it lends itself to task-based work in the classroom and less to kind of just teaching discrete grammar points because it was more right. functional. So right. I'm not saying it was full-on task-based and we didn't call it that, but right. I think there was a lot of tasky type stuff going on. So I think that's, these are my early influences and later on when I kind of read more about TBLT and got more into it I realized maybe we'd been doing something a bit like that and people like Steve Brown um, who is now a professor at the University of West of Scotland mm -hmm. um, he he was one of my tutors when I did my diploma and I remember observing him doing a, a class where students were trying to find the best route from different parts of Glasgow to other parts of Glasgow with an uh, underground and, and public transport map. Right. And it's very much this kind of life skills, survival skills stuff. And it was very communicative. Mm -hmm. And that, seeing people like him teach influenced me a lot as well. Okay. And that's, so you need, to, you need to ask the other Neils how they, I will. How, how they got into it. Because, I'll probably have the third Neil on the podcast as well. That way we will yeah, have a, should, a wave yeah. of Neils. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that, this ESOL, performance-based, because um, you said mm -hmm. when you first come into contact with, with TBLT, you didn't know it was called TBLT. So what, what motivated you to move away from, from this idea of using a, a, a prescriptive approach to language teaching, in this case, following a textbook and, and doing something that was more, um, I would say, um, competence-based, your ability to use the language rather than talk about the language? Right. I think... The main thing is, and, and I would also recommend Steve Brown as a good person to talk to, okay. uh, because he's, he talks about this now as well a lot, uh, is that in ESOL, we were using course books. Mm. But okay. I, I think course books that are designed to teach what might, we might call EFL. Mm. That's to say okay. they might be used outside of the English-speaking country with teens or adults who need English for general reasons, or as right. this famous phrase, by long English for nebulous purposes. <laughs> and there's just <laughs> very little in there uh, that meets the needs of refugees, asylum seekers, immigrants, right. 
because what are their needs? They need to survive, they need to do things like, let's say, I mean, it was a big shock for me because I did a CELTA in Edinburgh and the CELTA was with, uh, well, the teaching practice was with uh, mainly Basque actually, but quite a lot of Spanish, young mm. Spanish people who were living in Edinburgh temporarily or they were doing some work and having a work and travel experience. And so of course, they, are, they may have some survival needs, but it, it, we were doing this general English stuff with them. And then my first class when I, uh, I went back to Glasgow and I got a chance to work for a charity which provided childcare for, for uh, mothers, or asylum seekers, mainly from Somalia. Interesting. And I, was, <laughs> I had 15 women in a, in a scout hut in uh, one of the less privileged um, areas of Glasgow. And that was me fresh off my CELTA coming in and realizing that some of them uh, oh, wow. couldn't, couldn't read or write uh, with the Roman alphabet and some of them couldn't read or write at all. And some of them had an education. You know, it was just the most uh, challenging mix, but it was, it was fantastic. But I quickly realized that I hadn't learned anything in my CELTA that would, uh, well, very little, very little, I, let's say. I'm not going to trash you completely, although... I have my, you know, thoughts about it. We'll talk about that too. <laughs> I have yeah, my it, thoughts on the salt as well, but um, sure, sure. Yeah, it it wasn't. I mean, the first thing I did was I went to the local further education college, where a lot of the well, the fact is that a lot of the husbands of these women were going to the local college. Right. These women were at home looking after kids, so the purpose of the class was to get them out of the house and and help integrate them, so they could have somebody look after their kids for an hour or two in the morning and someone to, to teach them English. And I went to the college and uh, as a friend of mine, well, a friend of mine, somebody I knew from my hometown, which is Perth in Scotland, mm -hmm. was working there. And he, uh, he basically showed me what some of the things they were doing. And there's a lot of work with literacy, mm -hmm. obviously, uh, but ESOL literacy is a, is a whole different kind of subset of literacy teaching because you're teaching literacy in a second language. Mm -hmm. And uh, the kind of things they were doing were very task-based. I mean, I can see that now. But it was things like at that level, fill in a form, you know, and recognize which bit you have to put your name in and then be able to write your name. <laughs> Just things like that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And how to go if you went into a shop if something wasn't you couldn't find something how to ask for it so these these kind of things uh you don't get in course books course books assume these eefl course books i'm talking about right. assume that you're literate and assume that you you don't have these these very raw survival needs and um you know that it wasn't a case of rejecting course books for any ideological reason, it was, they were just completely impractical. They didn't meet the needs of the students. So that was my first mm. experience of, of uh, teaching, teaching English as a second language, I mean. I, I think it's safe to say, Neil, that um, course books do make a lot of assumptions about, about the learners that we have. And mm. I, I mean, I've, I'm also very critical of textbooks in general, um, but I wanna come back to one point that you mentioned. You said, is that we have something very similar in Canada we have uh, what we call LINK, which is language instruction for newcomers. So a lot of these newcomers are refugees, they're asylum seekers, um, mm -hmm. new immigrants to the country. And a lot of them are still being exposed to a discrete item uh, syllabi where they're, again, they're being presented language in a linear fashion, expected yep. to produce language that way. And a lot of them have, what I find is that a lot of them start these LINK programs, but they never finish because 
again, the, the common complaint is I'm not learning to communicate in the language. So you said something about they have to integrate, which is, again, the same motivation that a lot of these asylum seekers have, um, mm -hmm. these immigrants have here, this integrative motivation. Would you, would you say that course books do not allow or do not help students, or in this case, learners, um, integrate within the culture? Is that, is that the main problem with course books, in your opinion? Mm. I'm going to be careful here with what I say because um, I appreciate that course books have changed quite a lot. I mean, I'm talking about nearly 20 years ago when I started, and I think right. probably changed quite a lot. But um, I think it's not just the, as you mentioned, the discrete item syllabus that for me is the problem. It's the, it's the assu cultural assumptions they make about people. Mm -hmm. To give you the opposite extreme, okay. uh, a couple of years after I started working, the UK government produced a pack of materials for precisely for teaching ESOL learners, and it was called Skills for Life. Mm, I've heard of it. And it was just the most awful uh, opposite extreme of what course books do. It was, it was trying to teach students their real life skills, but it was incredibly patronizing. What was an, ex I don't, what was an example of a real life skill in that case? Um, well, I mean, there were things like, you know, how to write a job application letter and other things like that, but the kind mm -hmm. of cultural assumptions they made were, were horrible. So at the beginning, I think it was the, the A2 or the elementary, mm. one, you were presented with three families. There was a Muslim family. Okay. And uh, they got to pray at five in the morning or whenever it was, and they did all this, you know, they did everything wow. by the book. Then there was okay. a Sikh family that did their things in a Sikh way. And then there was a single white mother uh, <laughs> who didn't go to church, you know. I mean, oh. just presenting these stereotypes. Um, no divorced so, families, I'm guessing. Yeah, No exactly. single parent families, okay. <laughs> wow. Um, it was presenting, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, so even when materials are, are made for that target, uh, I guess, body of students, mm -hmm. they still don't get it right, you know, and it's still, it was better to some extent than the course books because there were units dealing with skills that we needed to have. Mm -hmm. And we could kind of plug in some of the units into the assessments that students were right. doing. These assessments were incredibly important um, because they could lead to getting um, school level qualifications in some cases, and then, excuse me, university access right. and citizenship. That's to say, the chance to get a British passport. Interesting, so, because we have yeah. a citizenship test here, and apparently the um, I don't remember the name of the test now. I think it's called CELPIP. And it's supposed to be um, performance-based, again, being able to integrate within the community. But mm -hmm. I remember um, that the questions on the exam are not really um, an example of the kinds of skills that you would have to do in real life here. So you don't have these so-called skills for life or real-life skills um, within these assessments, within these, these exams. Why, why do you think, I think my question to you is, why do you think these, the people who are behind these um, assessments, behind these um, published materials, what, what, what are they getting wrong? I think that's the question. What is it that they're not getting? Well, it's a big, it's a big question. I couldn't comment on, on the situation in Canada. I can say that there are many flaws with the Scottish qualifications. Mm. Okay. Um, but I think that 
in principle, they were doing, they're trying to do the right thing. And I'm sure they've done more. And I, in fact, worked for a while with the Scottish Qualifications Authority mm -hmm. to help develop some of the, some of the assessments that they had. And at times it was just very, these institutions have their own rules and they're very rigid on some things and it becomes difficult to change. So I think maybe it's about the way things are done becomes like a straight jacket. Right. Um, and we, we were talking to Scott Thornbury the other day and mm -hmm. uh, he was just talking about how the, the course book self-replicates. That, uh, yeah, there is innovation to a certain extent. There mm -hmm. is progress, but uh, we're not seeing a lot of progress away from that rigid kind of structural syllabus because it seems to sell and it seems to fit into many countries' um, examination systems. Yes. And I know there's a difference between global course books and course books that are made for, for, for specific nations. But um, I think in a lot of countries, is there's, there are high stakes uh, tests which depend on uh, declarative knowledge, and, and I'm living in one of them. Interesting. Um, huh. So this is it needs to be there needs to be I think at state level recognition. Now we are seeing some movement, and I think there's something in Canada I, I believe uh, in terms of assessments for medical uh, people for nurses, mm. and there's now a Cambridge one here and here I mean here I mean in the UK because right before you know to be a nurse uh, to work as a nurse in the UK you had to have an IELTS of I think six or six point five. Oh, and okay. uh, are, you, are you familiar with the IELTS yes exam? yeah well, it's, it's it's huge here as well yeah it's massive but it's uh, what they found is and I I I believe they tested some uh, native speaker nurses who didn't get <laughs> six point five. I mean, it's ridiculous. The, the what, what did they get? I'm curious. What I, I don't know. A native, know. A native speaker wouldn't get a six point five on the Niles. I know I that think for a fact. It's it's to do with the maybe they hadn't been given preparation, but you know that task where you get the graphs or the tables and you have to write the, this little text that's very yeah. tightly constructed. Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, it's not really, it, it, it's not a good measure of someone's ability to do the job. That's right. So when you see that uh, people passing IELTS, then maybe some of them are passing it and getting in there and then they're not showing that they have the communication skills right. to do the job of nursing, maybe. Or on the other hand, uh, they're not getting enough nurses in because so many of them fail it. And in Scotland, we had a really kind of traumatic experience not traumatic so much for us but for the the girls involved but we had a, a big group of Chinese nurses that came over and they were kind of mm. sold down the river by an agent an unscrupulous agent and I think also the college that we were working at was unscrupulous huh. they were told they had IELTS 5 or 5.5 and they were not that high and they were nowhere near it and most of them ended up working in uh, in private health uh, you know cleaning old people's bottoms in in um, in retirement homes a lot of similarities with what we have here especially mm. with the IELTS I think um, I find this um, I was teaching at a university and a lot of our students would I think they were supposed to be at an IELTS 5.5 but we found out that a lot of them were not 5.5 I think because you are for some reason people are able to forge their own IELTS score back in China and even the students who do get a 6 or a 6.5 and, and um, get accepted into universities and colleges in Canada a lot of them struggle with their communicative skills. A lot of them cannot yes. talk because again, if you, I, I, even when I look at the IELTS, I tell a lot of my students is 
just because you pass the IELTS, it doesn't mean you can actually communicate in the language. You're able, you're being, you're being assessed on IELTS um, examination skills. You're not being assessed on your ability mm. to, to do yeah. things in the language. So I think, I think that's one of the problems that we have is that these assessments are not a, a I would say a natural reflection of how we actually use the language. I'm, yeah. I'm interested in this medical thing because I think we have something here um, for nurses, but I would have to, I would have to look into I that. I believe you do. I was looking at it the other day. I mean, I can try and find the, the link that I was mm. uh, looking at, but uh, I believe it was a uh, Canadian qualification. And mm. as I said, there's something in it being done by Cambridge. Mm. So when I think there's a, let's say a gap, or uh, a crisis created by the ina inadequacy of a traditional qualification for particular, you know, professions. You know, IELTS is general; it's not designed well as mm -hmm. an academic one or a general one, right? right? Yeah, but uh, it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, you need someone to step up and say, "Look, let's do it like this, and let's get it accepted." And if we can get these high-stakes assessments becoming more performance-based, mm -hmm. then you've got a far better argument for doing task-based stuff to prepare uh, students for it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Okay. I think the one that we have here for immigration purposes and citizenship, and just to go back to that IELTS conversation that we were just having um, before, mm -hmm. a lot of um, Scottish, Irish people, um, Australians who take the CELPIP also don't pass the citizenship test because right, they have right. to prove that they, um, that they have, that they can speak the language. But again, the, I don't think the exam truly measures their ability to, to communicate because from what I remember, one of the questions is they show you a picture, which is very similar to that task, that Willis task, where you have a beach scene and you have to describe what people are doing. Yeah. Um, and I think one person just, you have to speak for two minutes, but one person just say, he just looked at the picture and he said, um, I think they're just going to get bored and go to a pub. <laughs> and that was it. So, I mean, how can I assess this person's English when they only spoke for maybe five seconds? So I think there is a problem with assessment there um, mm -hmm. here as well. Yeah. Um, so you, so you, we talked a little bit about uh, the ESO, your, your, um, how you started with test, test-based language teaching and how you, you subscribe to um, form uh, to Long's um, version of test-based language teaching. Before mm -hmm. we jump into TBLT, I want to talk a little bit about Sarve uh, Linguist Barcelona. I don't know if I pronounced it this time right. Yeah, listen, I'm, I don't pronounce it that well myself, but Cerveis Linguistics. Linguistics. Cerveis Linguistics. The, okay. It's Linguistic Services. It's a very prosaic name. <laughs> <laughs> but we like the way that SLB sounded. So uh, you said you guys started in 2014. Yeah. So I have, because I was thinking, I mean, I don't have a lot of experience with cooperativas. But what I, from what I know, Neil, is it, it involves this mutual assistance in, in working towards a, a common goal. So yeah. perhaps we can talk a little bit about the genesis of the Cooperativa. How did this project be begin? What led you to this project? Right. Well, as I said, I've been working in public education in Scotland. And I moved to Spain mainly for romantic reasons that my partner is Catalan, Catalana. Okay. And she, um, we met in Scotland, but she found a good job here. Mm -hmm. And I'd been, I'd taken a sabbatical while I was in FE in Scotland and I'd worked to, uh, for a year or so in Central America. And that's when I started teacher training. So my Spanish had got up to a reasonable level doing that. 
-hmm. and Glasgow is a wonderful city, but the weather can get to you, <laughs> and yeah. uh, the sectarianism can get to you a little bit. So <laughs> I I felt it was good a good why not let's do it let's let's see. She had a, a good job opportunity, and I thought I would see what I could get, and I was kind of shocked by what I could get, you know, mm -hmm. because I consider myself quite well qualified. I mean, I got a doctorate from from early earlier on, which is literature, not not ESOL or anything, but right. I had that, I had the CELSA, I had the, the diploma. The DIP, right? Yeah. Yeah, the Trinity one. And I had plenty of experience. And what I discovered was that most teachers coming in to Barcelona will end up working in a private language academy, as we call them. Mm -hmm. It's a private language school. And I was working one of the better ones, and I'm not going to uh, complain about the specific right. school I was in and it gave me opportunities um, and I started training on a on a Trinity certificate as well okay. um, but incredibly frustrating um, the kind of rates of pay and the precarity of it all that you never quite knew and that accounts for teacher training as well and teacher training on a month-to-month -month basis you never knew how many hours you're gonna have to work Wow um, and there were a few of us in the same position huh. And we started thinking about what we could do. And we'd noticed that people who got sick of that, who were a bit older, perhaps they had more experience, um, they tended to go freelance. Mm. Um, so freelancers tend to work more in companies, with companies um, and with private students, obviously, but they can set their own rates. And, you know, it's not the magic bullet. It's not, it's not right. the most, we'd rather have better rates uh, for contracted teachers, but uh, we decided to go freelance, a few of us, a group of us. Um, uh, there were three of us who were teachers, and my partner came in as well because she was doing a bit of translation work at the time. Okay. And we thought, well, we could be freelance, but, but what could we do to, to, to support each other? Mm. And the idea of a co-op came up, and we, we just went for it. We decided to do it because it meant that as a cooperative, we could uh we could try to get contracts with companies and then we could still be freelance and have the freedom to work with whoever we wanted but we could have something that kind of helped each other and we thought that could be attractive for other freelancers so that was the idea and that was in 2014 as you said mm -hmm. and that was four of us and there are 20 of us now wow five years down the line uh, we would like more but we think that's pretty healthy mm -hmm. And that's 20, yeah, two members who are kind of honorary members. They don't pay the subscription fees. Right. So there is a subscription fee. Okay. We have to talk about that. Yeah. There's an investment. Basically, uh, the culture in Catalonia and, the, and the, legal, the legal situation is, is very favorable towards cooperatives. Mm. And there are various kinds of co-op. Um, and the most kind of well-known one would be, a, they call it, uh, well, it's a work cooperative where basically the, the workers own the company. Right. Um, huh. But we, we thought that was, going to be, that was going to take a lot of investment and would be a huge risk. And we thought if we were going to do that, we were going to have to be, become a school and compete with these private language academies that we just right. were trying to get, get yeah. away from. And the problem with that, well, I mean, we, we just thought it would be a race to the bottom. So we thought, why don't we just keep it? We, we, we stay being freelancers. And when we, we found out there's a formula for that, and it's called a services cooperative. Mm. And it's kind of, if you imagine like an agricultural model, okay. let's imagine you're a small farmer 
I mean, not, you're not physically small. You've got a small bit. You've got a little patch of land in it. Right, right, right. Right. You grow a few bits, and so do I, and so does somebody else. Uh, individually, we can't afford a piece of equipment or machinery that we need, but collectively, we could get it. Right. And that's the idea, mm. more or less. And the the services co-op in Catalonia was designed, I think, for that kind of that kind of working situation. We kind of took that formula and we kind of reinvented it a little bit. But it made sense. Mm -hmm. And so, as with all co-ops here, and I think worldwide, every member pays in an investment. And we try to keep that as low as possible. So it's 200 euros to come into okay. the cooperative. And that that's buys you a share. Okay, that buys your yeah, share. That's your share. And so if yeah. you leave, you get that back. Um, and that share forms what we call social capital. That allows us to buy things and do things. And then um, we have a kind of subscription. So we all pay in a little bit every month to keep things running. Right. And now we're getting up, getting up to 20 plus. We might look to try to reduce that. I don't know, but um, we've been paying in between 15 and 20 euros each every month to keep the, this okay. running. And we've also been putting in quite a heavy investment of time. Uh, especially at the beginning, we saw time was a very precious commodity. Basically, you had yes. to have a minimum of 3,000 euros to start the co-op, to start okay. a business, any kind of business here, I think, but okay. certainly for a co-op, you had to have 3,000 euros, and 3,000 euros doesn't get you very far mm -hmm. unless you are prepared to put in time. So we saw time was something we could all also invest. Right. And what we're trying to do now, or we tried to do this over the past two or three years, is is... More, of, more and more of that work that was kind of done voluntarily is now getting paid for. Mm. So that's been one of our main objectives. What kind of voluntary work did you guys do? Well, at first the admin was all done voluntarily. Okay. Um, the, what else could I say? Yeah, you know, kind of creating materials banks and things like that that we do, that was done right. voluntarily. I want to talk about that as well. So yeah, a lot of effort mm. was put in at the beginning and um, but that we're now in a position where we're able to pay for more and more of that work and, and uh, people can benefit. So what, is the, so what would you say is the main goal or the main aim of the Cooperativa in this case? Well, we had, we had two objectives mm -hmm. and that was to improve our economic conditions as, well, not just as teachers because we, we were kind of doing teaching, writing materials, translation work, proofreading work. So that's why we called it language services, just because it right. was just teaching language. And um, so we wanted to improve our economic conditions and we wanted to improve our uh, technical abilities as a group. So it has that CPD element to it, right? where in some schools here do decent CPD, others don't. Uh, we felt, because a few of us had teacher training experience, we felt we could pull that experience and knowledge and sort of help each other and we can we do we do cpd on a regular basis that it's kind of determined by the needs the needs of the of the members oh. um, so yeah so these are our two objectives and um all we do is kind of directed towards trying to meet those objectives let's take a quick break we'll be right back you know, quality professional development is such an important part of the teaching industry, but it's surprisingly hard to come by. That's why I was so pleased to come across Learn Your English, a company providing online teacher education courses with a fresh perspective. My name is Erin, and I'm an English language teacher. 
After a decade in the classroom, I found myself teaching the same things in the same way. My learning seemed to have plateaued. I wanted to take charge of my learning, and I really like how the online Learn Your English courses don't prescribe anything. They motivate me to reflect on my teaching and propose tactics and ideas I hadn't considered. If you're a language teacher wanting to learn inside your busy schedule, I highly recommend their online courses on Thinkific. Head on over to lyenetwork.thinkific.com. That's lyenetwork.thinkific.com. Take control of your education. You won't regret it. Coucou tout le monde, je m'appelle Marise et je viens de Côte d'Ivoire. Vous écoutez The Teacher Talking Time, The Learn Your English Podcast. Amusez-vous bien! So it has that CPD element to it, right? Where some schools here do decent CPD, others don't. Uh, we felt because a few of us had teacher training experience, we felt we could pull that experience and knowledge and sort of help each other and we can we do we do cpd on a regular basis that it's kind of de determined by the needs the needs of the of the members uh. um so yeah so these are our two objectives and um all we do is kind of directed towards trying to meet those objectives i'm thinking now i mean i, I love the idea i love the model and i think it's it's i'm just thinking because you mentioned something um, in a conversation on Twitter a while ago about the um, precarity in, in Barcelona. You mm. mentioned this, this, this is how the Cooperativa kind of uh, started. Um, what I'm thinking about is how can other teachers or other groups of teachers um, create a similar cooperative in their respective countries? I mean, what are some of the successes that you have experienced as well as, again, we all, if we're talking about the successes, I think we also have to think about some of the challenges because mm. I think precarity is everywhere in our industry. I, I think we see it in Toronto. I don't know if you know this, but the average teacher in Toronto, I think makes about between 15 to $20 per hour. Mm -hmm. And there is no work in the winter. So teachers don't have work from, because schools don't, don't have a lot of students. We don't have students yeah. in the winter. So basically from, I would say, November to April, a lot of teachers are working either part-time, they mm -hmm. are unemployed, mm -hmm. um, or they're just, I don't even know how they survive. I work for colleges and universities, so it's a different story. I would say, I like to think that I'm privileged. Mm -hmm. I still think that we get overpaid in these places. Um, but how can how can this model become more sustainable in other um in other um countries in other um sectors i really can't uh make too many comments about that i think every every place has its own difficulties challenges right. and opportunities uh, i'm i'm not trying to pass the buck here i'm i'm, no, no. I'm honest honestly um because from what you say, you know, if there are several months, I mean, it's like here in the summer and the summer it's difficult to earn money here as right. a teacher. Um, what, what a co-op can do is it can try to diversify the skill set of its members and help people get opportunities like, I don't know, for example, proofreading. Mm -hmm. um, now, this is different in Canada. I mean, when you're in an English speaking country, I'm sorry, English and French speaking, I know. Yeah. But um, we are not in an English speaking country here. So there are opportunities where, for example, you've got hospitals and they're doing research and they have to publish papers in English. So you've got opportunities there to do proofreading jobs like that. And uh, that's one example. So you can try to diversify the skill set of your members 
But another example is you can compete with the local private sector schools yes. if, uh, well, if you can get a handle on how it is that they do in-company classes. Mm. And here, I'm afraid to say how, how the, the private academies do in-company classes is they get a contract oh. with a company, they send a teacher in, and they do nothing to support that teacher. Really? Um, and uh, the teacher gets paid uh, at the standard rate and I don't know, we, 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 wow. I wouldn't say, but we figured out what some of the companies were paying. Mm. We realized we could charge them competitively around about the same, give a much bigger chunk to the teacher. Huh. And um, the rest of it goes back in the pot for the co-op. You know, some of it needs, is needed to pay for admin and for running costs, etc. Right. But it's not like an agency. So an agency here might send a teacher into a company and take 50% of what the company pays. And we are taking more like 20% of what the company pays us. But that 20%, if you like, is, is going into the, the pot that everyone uh, is right. an owner of, if you like. And if we do make a profit at the end of a year, then we all decide what to do with that profit. Interesting. And for the five years that we've existed, we've, always, we've not always made a profit. But let's say we've made a slight loss some years and a profit other years. But when we have oh. made a profit, we've uh, always voted to reinvest it which means I think, I think we should probably become a not-for-profit organization. But that's, that's my opinion. And just because I'm the president doesn't mean that, you know, right. because everyone's, everyone's got a say in that. So yeah. that would be my personal uh, ambition for the co-op. But what does that mean? It means that you, you look for where uh, you might be able to compete huh. with the other schools in the area. And you look to where, without... Uh, playing this race to the bottom game. Mm. And because we are not a school, we don't have a school premises, we rent an, uh, an office in, a, in a, what we call a co-working space. I don't know if you guys call it co-working there, but you we can have the same thing, yeah. Same, yeah. same thing. Yeah. We rent an office in a co-working space that has, uh, has rooms that we can have meetings in, do training, and, and uh, if necessary, do classes. But mainly we are working in the companies, in the hospitals that we have contracts with, and therefore our overheads are much lower than uh, some of the academies are so that's that's what we do and we reward mm. the teacher with that and if if the company is further out of the center of town teacher gets more company pays more teacher gets more right company pays us more <laughs> basically the teacher gets more which is not what happens in the which is fair which is fair i think that's the point it is yeah fair. that's what we're trying to achieve uh we don't have enough work enough contracts for everybody in the co-op but where we don't, we have this network because, we're all, as we said, most of us mm. are freelancers, the ones that are based here, because we've got some people based in other places like in Germany right. uh, and England. But the ones, those of us who are based here benefit enormously just from the, the network of, of teachers in the co-op because we all get offered work as individuals and we can't always take it on. Right. And so we put that, we have got a Slack uh, group and that just goes immediately into the Slack group. And so either if teachers don't benefit from contracts, the co-op wins. They, mm. they tend to benefit from, from work being passed around the group. Oh, yes. So that, uh, and because we trust each other and because, you know, we, we let people in who are kind of committed to what they're doing and who want to develop professionally. And, mm. you know, they don't, have, they don't have to be super, super qualified people to come in, but they have to show that kind of, Desire to. I was going to ask you that. Do a good job. Yeah. 
to what extent do you think English language teaching is a, I mean, a profession in Spain? Like, um, I don't know in, in Spain, but here in Canada, we have, I mean, we have people who are devoted to, to language teaching, who, who invest in their professional development, but we also have people who do this as a side gig. Like, what's, what's the current, and I think you mentioned um, a survey, you guys did a survey uh, yeah. about the current state of affairs of ELT in Barcelona. Perhaps mm. we can talk a little bit about that. Yep. Uh, it's not a profession. <laughs> it's not. It's not a profession. What I'm is it then? <laughs> it's it's some kind of. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I I hesitate to make this comparison, but uh, please do. But you know that kind of <laughs> thing you get uh, where people who who work on a kind of day to day basis mm. doing menial work. Are waiting by the side of the road for a pickup to come past and the pickup stops and the guy says you and you and you jump in the pickup and then they've got to go and you know they've got to go and mow somebody's <laughs> lawn or trim someone's hedges oh spacious borders it feels like that sometimes and it feels like that even and i don't want to you know because you know i, I don't want to make you know they say here in spanish that all, all comparisons are odious mm -hmm. But it has that feeling of precarity in that sense that, uh, and that's even for teacher training, I believe. I'm surprised about the teacher training thing. I, just, I, was, yeah. I was just under the impression that teach, the trainers would have more stability in what they do, but apparently they don't. I talked to a friend who's a CELTA trainer here and he told me the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bad. I mean, I, I was doing not CELTA, but a Trinity cert. Right. And I have to say that, you know, uh, you'd be all right for a couple of months and then somebody new would come in and you'd find half your hours had gone. Wow. Um, and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, maybe there were, you know, the things that could have done about it. Mm. But it's, 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 that, it's that kind of, that's the level of precarity that we have. And a big factor in that is that Barcelona is a very popular not just Barcelona, other parts of Spain as well. It's a very popular destination to do Celtism and uh, four-week courses. Yes. And, and this is what we're talking about with, with Scott Thornbury, the, the kind of backpacker teachers. And uh, it's not to be derogatory because many of them do come on to be, take, you know, take, take their jobs seriously and to try yeah. to... It's soul-searching, uh, I would say. It's soul-searching. You're still trying to figure out if this is what you want to do for the rest of your life. So Right. Yeah. But you've got people coming in all the time that are taking uh, whatever jobs they can get. Um, they're happy to accept low rates because yes. they're getting experience. Yes. And they don't speak the language very well often. And they don't engage with the local unions. And they, you know what I mean? So it's this, this is the kind of um, situation that you find. And that's why, as I said earlier, a lot of older, more experienced teachers tend to become freelance. Mm. and try and get out of that kind of uh, network so when you become freelance maybe you can feel a little bit more professional and that's part of the reason we set up the co-op was to to have that professional feeling that we were trying to develop each other and help each other uh with resources with training mm -hmm. um with opportunities and i think that we have done quite a lot to to reach those go these goals not completely but we're 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 on the right track. It's, I'm, 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 it's, this is fascinating. Um, I was just thinking most, most educational initiatives are profit driven. 
Mm. We're talking about local private schools. The local private schools here charge students. I don't know how much they charge, but I know it's probably cost students an arm and a leg. I've had students, even the colleges and the universities here who have their, what they, they call the pathway programs, and I have worked for them. So I can say um, a lot of them are not results driven. A lot of mm. them are not research based. And this is a major problem. What, what do you think people like you, the SLB, other teachers out there, people who actually see this as a profession, what is our call for action? What can we do to actually try to professionalize our industry a little more and move away from, from this idea of, um, you know, I, because I, like I said, because most educational initiatives are profit driven, they are the ones keeping the money. Teachers are, teachers, I don't know how teachers are surviving in, in Canada, especially in Toronto, which is a very expensive city. So my question is, what can we do? A lot of these schools are still teaching from, from course books. Um, it's all about the fun factor, the experience. A lot of students, I find that they don't really know how to distinguish a good language uh, class from, from an experience where they go to a school and all they do here is party. Um, yeah. But I don't think they're really learning. So what can we do as an industry? How can, we, how can we support each other? I think that's the question. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think where, where becoming a co-op isn't, isn't viable or doesn't, it seems like a too big a step, I, mm. I, I strongly believe that we need to organize and unionize. Mm. And I don't know what your situation is in Canada, but we've got a very uh, weak union here um, representing us and it can only get stronger with more members. And what we have here are uh, they're called convenios or they're sector-wide agreements mm -hmm. um, and there's a convenio for example for the the unregulated educational sector so that tells you everything you need to know it's unregulated <laughs> unregulated yes but uh, there are some minimum standards of paying conditions that have to be met and they're not very good but it's something mm -hmm. and there are schools abusing them so how do you get uh, Abus professional abusing, sorry sorry abusing them how like in what way they're not like for example, mm. yeah, I'll just give you one example because okay. it's like the, most easy, the easiest one. So, for example, you get a contract whereby you're kind of laid off in okay. the summer. But over that time, you're supposed to be accumulating uh, holiday money. It's called a fixed discontinuous contract. So it is a kind of fixed contract, but you're laid off in the middle of it all. But you're supposed to be given what's called finiquito. And finiquito is the... <laughs> holiday money that you've accrued over the months you've been working. Okay. So they pay you a salary, but also there's some money that's every, every hour that you work, a little bit of it's put aside, put aside, and teachers are supposed to be paid that. And lots of, I'm uh, not say lots, there are employers who, who, who take advantage of the ignorance of their workforce and don't pay that. And that's something that's incredibly easy to fix. Because if you went to the union with that problem and say, look, they didn't give me any money at the end of the contract. And I, I thought I was supposed to get something uh, from what the union, union have told us. Usually one phone call to the offending school is enough to get things moving because the oh. fine, you know, there are, there are consequences. You know, uh, in Spain, when, when people take employers to industrial tribunals, uh, the employees generally win. Really? Or there's some settlement in favor of them. Because, uh, you know, the European laws uh, protecting workers are, are reasonably good, I think. And in Spain, there are other ones. So although uh, after the crisis in 2008, the, the, the law was weakened in a lot of areas, there was a kind of uh, reform of, of labor laws that, that 
pit workers. Right. There's still protections there, and it's just people don't know about them. Okay. So we 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 need, I think, to unionize, to organize, to, so people know their rights, so people don't get cheated, uh, and then with a, a kind of bigger base of people in the in the unions then we can maybe have a platform for negotiating better paying conditions. Mm -hmm. With better paying conditions, which I think should include, and this is the absolute key thing, and this is what the current convenio does not provide for, is paid uh, preparation time. Yes. And paid course development time. Then we might see yeah. schools uh, not just having this slavishly follow the course book type course, uh, but maybe developing other types of course and improving quality all around. And I think that's when people can start feeling professional. At the same time, we need to regulate as much as we can this unregulated sector. Yes. <laughs> I and think it's, an, I mean, do you guys have an association there? Like we, we have a, what we call here, TESOL Canada. Yeah. And then we have TESOL Ontario, who allegedly are supposed to regulate our sector. But in my honest opinion, I don't think they're doing a very good job. Well, I don't know. We've got TESOL Spain, but it's like a, it's a teacher's organization. Um, I don't know how much influence they have at uh, state level. I mean, the situation in Spain is complicated by the fact we have autonomous regions, of which Catalonia is yes. one, and it wants to be more autonomous. <laughs> so want, want Very autonomous. autonomous. Yes. Um, and that maybe complicates matters a little bit. So I could only really talk about Catalonia rather than talk about the whole of Spain. So maybe we need a kind of piece mm. of Spain, but I think the pressure can come from the union uh, there, and we can we can see if we can get more more regulation into this private sector that mm. could protect teachers. Yes. Uh, so it's got something. I think there's two two directions. This has got to come from 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 below, from from people organising and and standing up for themselves, and from above. I think. Uh, in terms of putting in more protection and taking the taking the the field a bit more seriously. Yeah, no, I full agreement with you on that, especially when it comes to paid prep, um, which leads to segues very nicely into task-based language teaching, um, <laughs> because one of the things I have heard from a lot of teachers when we do. Um, in-service sessions, um, when we talk about task-based language teaching in Canada, one of the things that we often hear from teachers is it's, well, the first one is you can't do it with low-level learners, but I think based on the conversation that we've had today with your experience, especially with uh, ESOL, that yeah. there was a lot of, of task-based language teaching was done primarily with very low-level um, um, learners. Yeah. Um, it's yes. nonsense, that. I think it's nonsense. I think it's really... <laughs> Uh, it's it's really misguided. I, I get quite annoyed when people say that. Even Rod Ellis, who oh, we're going to come back to Ellis too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll leave it just now. But I'll just say no, no, please, even, no, no. Just tell me about the Ellis. I want to hear it. Just even Rod Ellis. Rod Ellis has this idea of a modular syllabus. Okay. I think Rod Ellis is always sitting on the fence to a certain extent. He always <laughs> wants to throw out the. He's got vetted interest, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know. He doesn't want to throw out the grammar syllabus completely. His idea was for a pure task-based syllabus that sits alongside uh, a structural syllabus. And How is that even like, possible? Yeah, well, there are two separate streams. Oh. I don't know, two classes a week that are purely task-based and two classes a week maybe that are purely uh, grammar-based. Wow. 
he sees it more uh, as kind of discovery type grammar learning and ductive right, type stuff. Right. And the two things might not necessarily match up with each other, you know. Um, but he he has this graph whereby he thinks that for the first stages of language learning from beginners to roughly low intermediate, there should be none of the explicit grammar stuff. Okay. And it gradually gets introduced. And when they're super advanced, they do less of the task-based stuff and more of the explicit grammar stuff. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just saying that for even for Rod, Rod Ellis, who I think more than any other, uh, well, let's say Ellis and Long are the two main academics yeah. uh, promoting TBLT. Ellis is far more in favor of uh, retaining something of the structural syllabus, but even he doesn't advocate that for beginner learners. And he advocates, let's get them doing tasks, mm -hmm. lots of chunk learning, lots of learning by doing, lots of input. Right. I wonder where this misconception comes from. Um, I think it's just lack of familiarity with task-based language teaching. It is, um, yeah. Probably. It's people like Penny R, I think, and, and Michael Swan maybe saying, you know, saying that how can they do tasks when they don't have the, the language to do the it language, with? Language, yes. The yes, point is that they get the language to do it from, from kind of input. From doing it, yeah. yeah. From input-based tasks. They might not yeah. be doing productive tasks from the kickoff. Right, right. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, I was just no. This is this is very. Um, I mean, the reason why I want to talk about task-based language teaching is because um, SLB promotes task-based language teaching. And very, mm. recently, you guys, as you mentioned, you've released in March 2019. You've you've released your first um, TBLT course. Yeah. Again, how did this idea come about? Why did you just? Why did the cooperativa decide to to release a TBLT course? Well, um, Jeff Jordan is the kind of main responsible one here the, the, the notorious <laughs> we're gonna get him on the podcast as well we'll get him we'll get him we'll get him you should just don't don't trigger him <laughs> no he, he's um jeff's uh, i like the guy listen yeah, i like the I guy to, we need yeah. people like that in our industry we need jeff is sorely, and he's sorely misunderstood he's one of the most supportive tutors uh, I worked with and he came to our co-op I think very near the beginning in 2014. Oh, and, so he is uh, a member then, so he's one of those 20 teachers. He became a member then, uh, more or less, he's the honorary, an honorary member, one of two, the other one is Roger Gilabert from the University of Barcelona, and oh, they're yes. honorary members because they wouldn't benefit from our services, they don't need us really, <laughs> but they pay their investment like everyone else, you know, for right. that given membership, and they can vote in different things, but they don't pay a subscription. Um, Jeff came in and did a talk, and at that time, uh, Long's magnum opus of SLA and TBLT had just come out, and Jeff was getting to grips with it, and he said, this is one of the most comprehensive books I've ever read. He gave us some examples of what stuff Long was talking about, and it really kind of caught our imagination, even though even Jeff at that time wasn't completely convinced that he was still uh, more in favor of a kind of process-type syllabus, a brain, mm -hmm. uh, and he was still quite... Um, taken with the Jane Willis framework for, for TBLT. Mm, okay. But that happened and then we've, we wanted them back and I think we'd started looking at ourselves. We, we bought a copy of the long book for our library and it became one of the most in-demand <laughs> physical <laughs> books that we've got. And um, lots of people were reading it. Some of us, some, of, some people in the co-op were doing MAs in Barcelona and we're, we're looking at long quite a lot. Mm -hmm. We got Jeff back and he said, look, I'm convinced now that this, this long model is the way that we could, could be going. And uh, we, we looked at it, but we thought this book is 
is wonderful, but it's maybe not very accessible. It's not something many teachers are going to pick up and read and, and email. And Long's TBLT isn't really designed for teachers to take up and implement by themselves. Right. Long himself will yeah, you say talk that. a lot about that. Yeah. It's got to be institutional for Long <laughs> because there's so much to it. And we thought, well, you know, this book isn't very accessible. Um, what if we tried to break it down and we, we could do a course? And, and we'd already been building, and this is a good example of a co-op initiative. Mm. We built an online platform because we had the idea of selling uh, online language courses uh, at the beginning and, and individual members invested uh, so we could build a platform that we could do that with. Okay. But it quickly became apparent that the, the, what's the word when you've got one product that you can use your unique selling point? No, it's not that. Anyway, your flagship yeah. product, whatever it is. I was going to think about USP, but yeah. Yeah, the, the, the kind of flagship course quickly became obvious that the most viable thing could be a TBLT course, mm. especially because Jeff knew Mike Long, knows Mike Long, and asked him, and he said he would help us and he would be a guest tutor on it. Nice. And that was the impetus behind setting it up. And then we got, I went to see Roger Gilabert, who's a professor at the University of Barcelona, who's, who's done a lot of work in, in mm -hmm. task design, needs analysis and these things. We had somebody local as well, and he's fantastic. And he became a guest tutor as well. And that, that got us started. But of course, when we ran the first course, we realized that um, a lot of people on it weren't in a position to be implementing Long's TBLT. We kind of anticipated that up to a point. Uh -huh but maybe not anticipated as much as it, it, it was the case. So uh, we realized that we are going to have to look at ways of, of presenting a kind of lighter version of Long 2, and it fitted quite well with what we were actually doing anyway with some of our clients. Right. So that's, that's to say that a kind of version of TBLT where our needs analysis is done, is done more on an on, as an ongoing thing, and that... Um, you know, you don't have the luxury of doing a full needs analysis before a course starts and doing a lot of uh, materials design before a course starts, but you're doing it in an ongoing way and you're trying to build, build up a bank of tasks as you go along. And that's what we call long light. Long light. There's a but long, also, long. <laughs> yeah. But we also, uh, on this course we're running now, are spending a little bit more time looking at just more uh, even lighter than long is doing as we call i call it tblt on the fly but also right. you wrote perhaps, an article on that yes and i've got something else in the pipeline that might clarify a little bit also what we see uh, the other nails anderson and mccutcheon doing which i think is more task supported language teaching um although it's kind of maybe yeah it's kind of between tblt and tslt and that, I think, is very useful for teachers who are in the, in the straitjacket of having to use a course book and follow a structure in the syllabus, but they want to make it more communicative and they want to lead the, the, the lesson with communicative stuff. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hello, friends. This episode of Teacher Talking Time is brought to you by English Central. English Central is by far one of the best source for textbooks and resources in ELT. I don't know about you, but I've been going there for about 15 years. And whether you're an institution 
or instructor, they have a great selection for you from business to general to academic English and even test prep. So if you're a teacher looking to develop, they have tons of great PD books as well, including two friends of ours who have been on this podcast, Mr. Merrick Kikoviak with Teaching English as a Lingua Franca, and Neil McCutcheon, who released Activities for Task-Based Learning. Check out the English Central online at englishcentral.net, or if you're in Toronto, they're right at Young and St. Clair Avenue. Talk to Nicole. She'll be more than happy to chat with you. Now, let's go back to the show. Hi, everybody. My name is Thiago Freire, and I'm from Sao Paulo, Brazil, and you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Also, what we see uh, the other Niels Anderson and McCutcheon doing, which I think is more task-supported language teaching. Um, although it's kind of maybe yeah, it's kind of between TBLT and TSLT, and that I think is very useful for teachers who are in the in the straitjacket of having to use a course book and follow a structural syllabus, but they want to make it more communicative and they want to lead mm -hmm. the 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 lesson with communicative stuff. I think that's a good compromise, especially for teachers who have been teaching. I mean, I'm going to talk about my specific context here. Mm. Um, I'm teaching an EAP program at a college and I find, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to be very honest here and I, I might lose my job, but it's okay. Well, you can edit it out. <laughs> you can edit this out later, but I don't think I will. Um, I, I'm teaching the same, I'm teaching level four, which would be common European framework. I would say a, a B1 maybe. Mm be one I would say and um, students have been exposed basically to grammar that's all they can do they have a lot of declarative knowledge they cannot produce so I taught my first course um, from uh, September to October entirely task-based in an EAP context and I decided to repeat it a second time and what I'm getting is much better results this time but as you said it is very time-consuming yeah. For one teacher to take on all the work of designing the needs analysis, designing yeah, yeah. the tasks, mm. testing them in the classroom, making adjustments, mm. running in a second time. So perhaps maybe the, the compromise would be instead of jumping into longs immediately, it would be what you just mentioned, this idea of, of having TBLT on the fly, which perhaps you can talk a little bit about it. Is it more similar to task supported or, or is it? Uh... Well, I see TBLT on the fly as, as the it's not exactly task supported language teaching i'll, I'll okay. give you an example of okay. on the fly if, if you'd like uh sure. so in one company that we work in and this is where <laughs> this, is, this is the problem with implementing tblt when you've got groups that don't share needs so i've got one little tiny group of two students and one guy is the sales the sales guy in the company and the other guy is the it guy oh Needs in common, they don't have, you know, it's yes. just, so with that, I do more of a kind of dogma type approach and communicative mm -hmm. stuff with them. And, you know, but one day I came in and the sales guy was off selling things somewhere else in Spain, in Seville. And I was left with the IT guy, who's a lovely guy. And he was stressed as hell because they were changing the, the electrical installation in the company. And the guys who were doing the installations were uh, Indian workers who had better English than they had Spanish. Wow. So the, 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 yeah, so basically the electrician, electricians were, were Indians and he was supposed to tell them what to do. And the foreman said to him, tell them in English because 
in Spanish they won't get it. And he was like, oh, Neil, how can I? So this is an example of an emerging okay. need for a real life task. Yeah. That, okay, I can't research. Uh, I don't have time. We have to do this in, this in this 90 minute lesson. We have to do something to help this guy do this a bit better. And this is, this is what happened. I said to him, tell me the problems that you're having to tell him about and tell me first in Spanish, because in this case, this guy knows his job in, in his first language. Mm -hmm. uh, and you speak the language as well, so. And I speak the language as well, but uh, my, my technical vocabulary in terms of electricians. Probably very good. limited, yeah. But there you go, you've got so many online resources and dictionaries and these things. And bit by bit, I said, tell me another problem that they've got and, and how would you tell them in Spanish? And let's look at, I think you could say this in English. Oh, what is that? What's that word? And we built a vocab list of the technical bits as we went along. And we just did role play after role play after role play. Mm. Now, it's not ideal by any manner of means. Uh, the Indian accent, we couldn't do much to help them with that because Indian English is, can be challenging if you're not used to it. Yeah. You know, all these other things that uh, obviously if I had time and we had a big group of people in that kind of situation, then we could do proper TBLT. But mm -hmm. we could do something that I think helped meet his need to a certain extent and give him some ammunition to go yes. away and have a little bit more confidence uh, in doing that particular task. So that is very on the fly. And that's a need that came up in the space of a 90 minute class that, that we could we could try to deal with. That's what I mean by that. Very interesting. It's, have you ever read a book by Peter Wilberg, Teaching One-to-One? -one? No, I haven't, I have to say. He, he actually talks a lot about that. Uh, I don't know how, I don't think he mentions task-based language teaching in that book, but one mm. of the things I really liked about the book is he talks exactly about that. He said, you have a conversation with your student and you find out what they need to do in the language. Yeah. And then together, you, you built you build this idea of, okay, so you want to be able, for example, a student says, oh, Leo, I need to make a phone call mm -hmm. and I need to do, I need to cancel my contract with my, my internet provider. I said, okay, so let's, let's role play that. So he basically says, students do the task. You look at the language that they've used, you fix it, you scaffold it, you work with it, and then they do it again. So it's mm -hmm. a lot of that. So I think it's a great, it's a great resource. And I, I need to find, I think I have a PDF copy of that book because I think as all good ELT books, it's probably one of those that is completely um, out of print. Yeah. Peter well, I mean, Lundberg, that's, one -to -one. that's very much like test, teach, test or, or task, teach, task. Yeah. Uh, yeah get them to do it, uh, help them do it better, get them to do it again. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's that kind of fits to this this uh, on the fly kind on of on the fly. I like level. that. Yeah. TBLT on the fly. So a couple of things, Neil. Here quickly. Um, been talking a lot about textbooks. Uh, what advice do you give to teachers, especially those who have been working with with textbooks, um, so they can still teach lessons that meet some of the prerequisites needed for second language acquisition? How can they move away from? This is a question I asked the other Neil. So. Basically, how can mm. they move away from a textbook, from teaching discrete grammatical points one after the other in a linear fashion, and we know that nobody learns that way? Yeah. How can, what, what would be easier for someone who is trying to become more familiar with TBLT? What would you recommend to, to, to teachers out there? I think uh, Neil McCutcheon probably would have given you a much better answer than me because... <laughs> I, on several occasions, have agreed with the class to leave the course book at home 
Uh, one of the things that I've done is, and this is probably making a rod for my own back, but we go in, we do a rudimentary needs analysis. Mm -hmm. What you need to do with the language. And we compare that needs analysis with the contents page of the course book and see how oh, much that's a very interesting thing to do. And and when when very little of it matches up, we say, okay, maybe we could do that in the restaurant section at the back of of chapter five B. <laughs> one <laughs> point, you know. But this is because I was working in an academy, it gave me a little bit of freedom. Mm -hmm. um, ideally, I was trying to get in there before they told the students to buy the book and allow me to have one session right. with the student where we decided whether or not we were going to follow a book or not. And I'm talking about um, general English class that had no right. uh, high stakes exam at the end of it. So uh, my, my tendency has been to, to do something much more freestanding. Mm -hmm. And I've been able to do that um, in part because I've built up a lot of material over, over my career so far. And because now we've got a shared bank of material in the cooperative that's quite healthy. And it's not all TBLT stuff by any, any manner of means, but it's communicative based stuff that might be based on a text or a video mm -hmm. with some ideas for how to use it. And it's, it's, it's that kind of material. And uh, based on my students' interests, I pull from that. And so I'm not spending all my time prepping. Right. I'm recycling older stuff and, and, and doing some new stuff uh, along, the, along the way in a more, let's say, dogma-style way with occasional task-based stuff in there. But you didn't ask me that. Um, uh, but I think Neil McCutcheon would probably give you a much better answer. And I, I think it would be something like you find the, the bits in the course book that are more task-like. And I think he believes... I'm not entirely convinced that they are that modern course books are full of these things, as he says, but allegedly, you know, allegedly they are. <laughs> they're there. And so you might get a kind of cutting edge type task of uh, well, one he showed me was uh, design a new community. Mm. Now, this for me is is divorced from most real life needs that right. you might have in a general English class. However, I see his point. You start with that, it's communicative, you don't do the, the uh, piecemeal grammar work beforehand, mm -hmm. uh, but you do the, the task, see how the students get on, and maybe you do a task, teach task, you know, you respond to how they do it, you do some focus and form, you give them a second chance to do it. Um, and then he said you might uh, then do some language focus afterwards, and especially if the students are gonna need to be tested on, disc on discrete explicit knowledge of grammar items, you should be doing that because otherwise they're not going to be able to pass the, the test. So I, have I a think funny story to share with you about that. But anyway, keep going. Please do. But that's for me. If you have to use a course book and you have a certain amount of freedom, that's to say, there's not somebody coming in your room and making sure you're on page ninety six when you're supposed to be on page ninety six. Then yeah, why not? But I think the problem is with that is that it's a bit like for me the Jane Willis framework that turns the things on their head and ends with language focus, I'm not at all convinced that ending with language focus is much, it's an improvement. Yeah. I just don't know how much of an improvement it actually is. Because the last thing that students are doing, perhaps, is doing some discrete item work and some controlled practice of forms. Yeah. That uh, in the end, it's, it's the, as Mike Long might say, it's, it's focus on forms by stealth. <laughs> it's, the, it's the structural syllabus by, syllabus by stealth. 
Uh, but okay, if you have to teach it, yeah. Yeah, there's got to be the task repetition. There's got to be another chance to do the task. That's what I think as well. Yeah. Yeah, but it, may, it may be that a teacher can't do that. Now, I'm not saying that Neil McCutcheon or Neil Anderson uh, say that we have to do language focused at, at the end. I don't think they're, they're dictating that at all. But I think it's with the Willis model, that's often uh, what gets done. And I'm not sure. And, and also, I'm not sure about these tasks that very often they're what Skian called uh, structure trapping tasks or what Ellis calls focused mm -hmm. tasks. Right. That they're, they're designed to promote the use of particular forms rather than perhaps develop particular skills for completing a task right that's where i'm i'm more yeah uh, i'm less enthusiastic mm -hmm. but if you have to teach a structural syllabus then what they call fluency first approach let's do the communicative bit first let's milk it for all we can and maybe then do the do the the focus on forms stuff why well, it's got to be better than, as Long calls it, drill and kill. Yes. And then a bit of productive practice at the end, if you've got time. Here's a, this, is, this is all fascinating because I'm thinking about my class, my EAP. I call it a TBLTAP. Um, right. It's, it's difficult. It's very, like I, it was very challenging for me to teach an entire EAP program because the moment I looked at the, um, the curriculum, there was no curriculum. It was basically a course pack with basically a bunch of grammatical handouts with gap fills. And one of the things that we do with Learn Your English is we like to say that we're trying to fill in the gaps without gap fills. Mm. Um, but one of the things that I, I experienced my first time teaching an EAP, um, task-based uh, language teaching with an EAP, within an EAP um, context was I had to use the tests that were pre-prepared for that specific class. And I remember, dealing with all the grammatical points by looking at, for example, one of the, the grammar points was um, using be supposed to. That was, that's something that, so I designed a task where I thought maybe they would use that language, but of course they didn't use only be supposed to, they use different things. But here's the interesting thing, Neil, when it came to the exam, my students bombed it. Like they failed miserably. And I remember thinking to myself, but oh, they did so well in class, they were communicating. But then I realized, I'm still testing them on discrete items. The test is still, so basically mm -hmm. what, what needs to happen is we need to, for, for TBLT to work within an EAP or even for TBLT to work, we need to change the assessment. Exactly. And it's that was the be, biggest yeah. realization for me there. That's why it's got to be institutional, this full TBLT approach. Um, it has to, an EAP is the perfect environment to do it. Um, and it's I agree. an institution on board to say, look, and speaking to the, you know, obviously you're doing EAP, you're with students who are going to go and do a degree course or a, or a master's or postgrad, whatever they're doing. And it's got to be based on feedback from their, their professors at university to say, look, they can't do this well, or they don't do that well, they don't take good notes in lectures, or these essays are, and, and the needs analysis is not just about asking the students what they need, it's going and asking these uh, domain experts, as Long calls them, what would be a good performance in an essay, if it's whatever subject it happens to be. And obviously if you're teaching EAP for people that are going into widely different disciplines, that's more mm. tricky. But uh, it, it has to be, the needs analysis has to be based on these uh, kind of, this analysis of performance and, and what makes for a good version of a task and what makes for a, a bad performance of a task. Right. 
and that the assessment should measure that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the assessments were definitely you know, measured. And Long's, Long's the most radical in all this because he, he talks about, you know, language accuracy didn't, doesn't come into it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think he, he would admit that in, in, in some cases it should do. I mean, we should be measuring accuracy because in certain tasks, language accuracy is going to count for something. But here's an interesting thing. I was at the task-based language teaching conference in Ottawa and I was there mm -hmm. with Andrew and we went to a session, surprisingly empty, but there was a woman who's done extensive research on, um, she basically surveyed a lot of professors, college professors, university professors, and found out what, what the, were their expectations in terms of international students in their classes. Mm. Um, surprisingly, none of them said that they expect their grammar to be flawless. Well, this is interesting, isn't it? And this is why we need to speak to these people. Uh, there are some really interesting cases. Long's 2005 book, uh, second language needs analysis. Mm. There's a, a chapter in there, and I can't remember the author's name, I'm sorry, but okay. well, uh, she described preparing, she described the US immigration interview, or the green card interview, I think, right. something like that. Mm -hmm. And she was able to go in and record interviews with permission, obviously, right. and analyze that and speak to the interviewers. And they said exactly the same thing. They did not deny people entry visas based on making grammar mistakes. They were super sympathetic listeners. They negotiated meaning with their interviewees. And it wasn't, you know what I mean? It, uh, accuracy was not really a big factor and, and, unless it caused, obviously, breakdowns in communication. Absolutely. And express. So it's, in, it's very interesting that, I think. And yeah i think in some cases you know we we need to we need to factor in language accuracy into into the assessment of some tasks but it right. certainly not be the be all and end all of assessing absolutely uh, yeah. no that was that was eye-opening for me especially when she said like a lot of these teachers are these professors are not expecting their students to write grammatically accurate but they do expect them to participate yeah. They do. so there's a lot of they have to participate they have to have active listening skills they have to be able to take notes and, I was, and the funny thing was, Neil, is that a lot of the, these expectations from professors at colleges and universities are not aligned with the curriculum that we have in a lot of these EAP programs. So it makes a lot of sense in that context to try and join it all up, but that has to be done at an uh, institutional level. And, a, 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 you know, good luck to you if you can <laughs> get people talking to each other and sell them the idea. We're well, fighting the, other the thing, fight. Uh, the other thing that I've never quite understood is why uh, even private language schools can't see TBLT as something different to market and to give them, give them a, you know, it gives competitive, it gives them some sort of uh, a edge. It gives them an edge. I think a lot of schools here don't see that as, as a, as a, as a, a unique selling point. We don't right. teach a grammatical syllabus. You will learn how to exactly. Yeah. I mean, at least with one bloody course, you know, let's, let's do, let's we do teach business English to accountants. Mm -hmm. or, or legal people or doctors or whoever it is because many, many private schools, they have, as I said before, these contracts with companies and, and institutions. It's the perfect way to say, look, come with us because we'll do tasks in class that actually your learners need to do and uh, it's going to cost you a bit more. This is what we do as a co-op as well when we speak to clients. You can have this course, but we'll do it that way. Or 
uh, pay a bit more, we'll do a TBLT course, and it could pay off in the long run if this is going to be a stable student population with courses right. running year in, year out. And EAP seems to me like the absolute perfect. Absolutely. Yeah, no, 100% in agreement with you on that. Um, we're, we're almost running out of time here, but I have two yeah, questions sure. to ask. Uh, the first okay. one is, this is from a listener of uh, one of your podcasts who actually uh -huh. reached out when I mentioned that I was going to be interviewing you. Okay. Uh, a listener said, and I think there was some sort of misunderstanding or misinterpretation there. <laughs> one listener said that Long was a bit disrespectful, especially when he was bashing Ellis. Yeah. I wonder if you could, you know, elaborate a little more on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think... I don't know. I think Mike Long is kind of annoyed by Ellis's misinterpretation of focus on form. Okay. And for Long, the idea of focus on form is very specific. And it's about reactive uh, teaching, really. It's reactive teaching, to, yeah. you, know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You can spell it out. Whereas Ellis has made it into this kind of thing that can be, I don't know. Preemptively I, teaching. Yeah, preemptive focus on form or uh, focus tasks that, that involve like almost like in a PPP structure. Mm -hmm. um, and that I think, I don't know, I, I can't speak for, for Mike. Um, he's, <laughs> I personally, all I can say is personally, I'm, I'm much less convinced by Rod Ellis. I think he sits on the fence too much. And I think he, interpret some of the research in a way that I think now is no longer tenable. For example, the support for explicit language teaching, it keeps going back all the time to the Norris and Ortega meta-analysis, right. the 2000, I think it's 2000, their paper. Yeah. And as Mike points out, and as anyone can see, there are so many caveats in the conclusion to that paper that get ignored. And more recent meta-analyses of explicit and implicit uh, teaching approaches are much more favorable towards, towards more implicit approaches, implicit, especially in terms of how, how long-lasting they are. So I think, personally, uh, with Rod Ellis, I don't think that he um, always does a good job of, of building the research into the methodology. Um, I'm not particularly enamored with this hybrid syllabus, uh, this idea I mentioned about, you know, yeah. You do grammar teaching in one stream of one module, as he calls it, uh, modular syllabus, he calls it, sorry, and one module of tasks. Mm -hmm. And he's done all this stuff on focused tasks that I think is not really TBLT. I think uh, that's where I differ from Ellis, but, you know, all respect to him. He's a, a proper academic who's been working for many more years, and I'm not. Mm. I'm, I'm more of a teacher with an interest in, in, in research. Right. Uh, so as to Mike's manners, I think that's something you could you'd have to ask him. Uh, Jeff as well, maybe because he's been a bit scathing about Rod Ellis. All I can say is that I just find, I don't always agree with Mike, uh, you know, in, in terms of, of maybe as we said, for example, with assessments that we ignore completely mm. uh, measures of linguistic accuracy. Right. And these types of things. Um, I don't agree with Mike necessarily that TBLT should only be done at institutions. I think what we're trying to do is encourage teachers to do what they can, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps with lighter versions of his uh, methodology. Um, but I just think that what he's done is, is far more consistent. It's thorough. It's so well supported. 
uh, and it makes a lot of sense in in certain contexts at least including the one that you've talked about so sorry I, uh, maybe you have to edit that a little bit because no no I don't <laughs> we're not going to edit anything etiquette. here <laughs> we'll, well, we'll keep yeah, running yeah. we'll keep running here okay. the last question i'm not going to ask you about your your record collection because that was <laughs> no, 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 no one cares um, but one of the things i'm going to ask is if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere mm. with anything on it metaphorically speaking getting a message out there to millions or billions of people what would it say and why jesus christ uh i'm gonna i should say don't give ground relative to your desire okay <laughs> would you like to explain why i'm gonna get killed for this it's uh it's, uh, it's <laughs> the aphorism from the the french psychoanalyst jacques lacan and in his uh, seminar on psychoanalysis, or the ethics of psychoanalysis, he talks about the, the character Antigone from Greek tragedy, and he, he uses her as a, an example of somebody who, who was prepared to be buried alive by her father, I think it was, um, rather than give up what she believed in. So, <laughs> although this okay. might sound a bit fanatical, <laughs> I think when it comes to um, trying to do things, and I think what we try to do in the, with the co-op, uh, very often you have strong desires for change and, and to try to transform things. And a lot of stuff often ends up falling by the wayside. People don't have energy, people don't have time, people are in precarious positions. They, it's very difficult, but I say as far as possible, to just do, not give ground to stand up for what you think is right and i'm not saying that i'm a shiny example of someone who's done that at all but i i think uh, that's what i would say don't give ground relative to your desire i'll wait for jeff jordan to absolutely slaughter me for saying it <laughs> wow this has been great neil thanks very much for coming on the show man i um we should have you again sometime soon well i'd love to and thank you very much and uh, especially for all your support and um, for what we're doing. We really appreciate it. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.